All right. Hi, everybody. It is Friday. Uh, let's see. Friday, June 12th, 2020. And this is episode 37 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Of course, my name is Luke Thomas. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, we will get to your questions today and a whole lot more. So uh, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, there we are. Uh, as always, please give the video a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. You don't, you're certainly under no obligation to, but if you ask a, uh, excuse me, if you ask a uh, question and you pay for it, I will uh, get to it at the end of the program, but certainly you're not under any obligation to do that. I'm trying to make sure that the focus stays appropriately, not on the mic and on me. It's a little harder to do than you might imagine. Um, okay, today we'll get to whatever you uh, wrote about in, I put a thread up. 24 hours ahead of time, and then you guys fill it up. So, without further ado, let's take a look at the thread, shall we? Let's take a look at the thread. Uh, okay. Hope everyone's doing well, staying, staying happy, staying positive, as Jim Zorn might say, acting medium. Uh, all right. There we go. Let's pull this up. Okay. There's a shitload. All right. Without further ado, let me take this off. There we go. Okay. So let's do this. I might want to put this over here. That's better audio. All right. First question. We are constantly hearing about the lack of Livegate as an issue with booking a McGregor fight. What do you think of booking a McGregor versus Jorge fight for an $85 pay-per-view? I tend to think most people would pay the extra $20 even if they don't like it, Maymac was 100 for uh, HD. Yes, it was. I remember paying for it. Well, uh, I think I paid for it after the fact, but I was actually at the event. Um, okay, so what do I think about it? Well, you know, I don't know that I like it that much, to be honest with you. Um, two different issues here. Let's start with the second one first, which is the, could you just charge extra for the pay-per-view? You have these A-list guys. Uh, why not just ha pay A-list money for them? Well, because it would kind of, you know, the UFC doesn't like to vary their price point up too much. And I know Mayweather-McGregor was kind of different, and boxing has done it without too much issue. But UFC just doesn't like to. So there's a bit of a problem there. I think the other thing you have to think about is um, we are living in a time of profound economic dislocation and challenge. It already is asking people a lot to pay for pay-per-views. Now you're going to raise the price during a time when people don't have money. I just think it might create bad PR. When you were doing it in, was it August of 2017 or something? I don't think it was nearly the same level of concern. Um, so it, it might feel like price gouging, you know, where you can say, well, we're trying to do this to make sure we have the fight because he doesn't get the gate rev. I mean, Connor never got the gate rev, but, you know, UFC just doesn't want to give up that money. Okay, I mean, that's understandable, but then they'd just be passing off the cost to the consumer at that point, and that might just not look all that great, I think. Um, as it relates to the first part, about we always hear that Livegate as an issue with the booking of the McGregor fight. I tend to think in the end that won't really be true. It might be a delay for now. I just had Steve Kim on my radio show talking about boxing and how many boxers there are who don't want to compete until there's a gate, or how many promoters don't want to put fighters who draw at the gate uh, in bouts until there is a gate, but like, I don't even know when that's going to be. And you can say, well, Texas is allowing 50% capacity and it looks like things are starting to open up. And that's true. 
right? I can't dispute any of that, but how long is that going to last? Um, the entire state of Texas is not necessarily all experiencing this. But if you guys didn't know, Houston is one step short of having a uh, reading, reaching a critical care shortage. They're one stage short. Um, and so as cases appear to be rising there, we'll see if that continues. If it doesn't, then they're fine. But if they do, where is that going to leave thing? Are we just still going to have shows with these other conditions? Like I don't, to me, all of this is still so uncertain. I, I just don't know which way to make, you know, what's coming or going. So this is my point. I tend to think that like having the kind of certainty that we need to have events where the shows are packed, you can have it in countries where they just did not have much of an outbreak and it's now totally controlled. So maybe you could do it in like New Zealand or, you know, various smaller countries in Europe or something, uh, or, you know, wherever they had minor outbreaks, maybe that's possible, right? That might be a doable thing. But as long as you want to have it here, um, I, you know, I tend to think that they might wait to see how things go. But if we get to the fall or the winter and they can have small gatherings, like a thousand people, does that really make any kind of a difference? I, to me, it's like, Eventually, they're just going to say, listen, we're just tired of waiting. We'll just take the hit. I honestly think that it might get to that. Or the other thing happens where we all figure out a way to deal with this in a way that doesn't matter, and, and then we have it. But they're just in a wait and see. So I think it's going to be either one of, the, one, of the, one of the either scenarios. Either they wait and it gets better, or they wait and they realize we have no idea when it's going to get better, or it just hasn't gotten better, uh, and they just say, fuck it, let's just do it anyway. Or they go to a country where they did not have a tremendous outbreak. One, one of the three. Um, how do you watch a fight? It's actually a good question. I find myself just looking at one person on the screen watching and reading what they are doing as if I'm fighting them. Uh, if I watch the whole screen, as in watching both fighters, I find myself not understanding what's happening. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's not as easy as it might think, actually. It's why watching a fight several times, you just learn a bunch of new things. I have a new uh, dissected up. I still have not quite perfected getting the uh, focus right, so you have to forgive me for that, but I'm doing it all by myself. It's not as easy as you might imagine. Um, well, it's, well, for somebody who's never done this before, but uh, I had to watch that Cody Garbrandt fight with Rafael Sunsau. I'm not kidding. 30 times, right? Because I was just trying to see like what detail am I missing to piece this all together. And I think after... You know, a few times uh, into that process, I was like, okay, now it's beginning to make sense what he was looking for, right? So what do I look at? I tend to look at some, I don't tend to focus on one fighter. I tend to look at the space between them. Um, or I tend to see who's like dominating action. I tend to just sort of look at it as a whole. And then when I go back afterwards, I then individually focus on one. But I've also done that where I've focused on one during a fight. I've just kind of stop paying attention to what I was doing or uh, not, 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 not stop paying attention. I've just sort of let my brain go into autopilot and I'm just watching one. And I found that it's just not a great way to watch a fight. You kind of got to pay attention to both. And the real, the reality is you miss things. You miss a lot of things when you do that. That's why I think judging a fight is kind of like a ridiculous concept to be honest with you. But you miss a lot when you sort of go back and forth. But if you just focus on one, I find that you miss more. So it's a question of what do you miss less doing? To me, I find I miss less to the extent that I uh, watch the space in between or go back and forth. 
Who would you have a debate, conversation, or fight? Out of Ben Shapiro, Jones, and Tucker Carlson. I worked very briefly, very briefly, with Tucker's brother, Buckley. That's actually his name. <laughs> Buckley Carlson. Nice guy, actually. Really nice guy. Um, I briefly worked with his brother um, on one project many, many years ago, back before I switched careers. So, isn't that funny? Uh, boy, those are some waspy names, huh? But um, I don't know. There's no point in having a debate with Alex because he's not, he's not a or a conversation or a fight. I mean, just totally ignore. Yeah, Shapiro, you could have a conversation or a debate with, and same with Tucker, I suppose. So that's not really an answer to your question, but that's the way I'm going to answer it. Uh, are you surprised that McGregor didn't push for the Usman fight or respond to the Usman callout? I know stylistically it's a terrible matchup for him, but he has always had desires of becoming a three-weight champion. Or do you think he realizes it's a terrible matchup and is hoping for a guy like Masvidal, Burns, or Colby to win the belt? Um, they might stand and trade punches more than Usman. Yeah, of course. Like, why didn't uh, GSP call out Whitaker and then waited for Bisping? Uh, I don't think that Bisping is some kind of pushover. In fact, I think, you know, he all the accolades he des uh, he earned, he deserved. But do I think that GSP thought that was a more favorable matchup for him? Of course I do. Fighters tend to do things at times when they're being strategic, either about pay or visibility or the next step, whatever the goal might be. And they want the path of least resistance. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes taking the path of most resistance confers such great respect upon them that they can build status. And then from when they build status, they can build wealth and then build everything else that they want to. So there comes a time when, you know, you don't have to take the path of least resistance. But when you get to a certain stage, uh, you begin to ask, you know, cost-benefit analysis in a much more direct and full-throated way. So... I mean, obviously, I'd be speaking for McGregor. I'm just guessing like you guys are, but that's a terrible fight for him, and I suspect that he knows it's a terrible fight, or at least, you know, a very, very hard fight to win. But if somehow Masvidal were to win it, or maybe Burns were to win it, although Burns might not be a great fight either, but certainly if, let's say, Masvidal won it, do I like Connor's chances against Masvidal more than I like Connor's chances against Usman? Of course I do. I think most of you probably would as well. Now, maybe you might think that both Usman and Masvidal destroy him maybe you think whatever you think I don't know but I, I just tend to believe that the guy who can wrestle and then can do jiu-jitsu but prefers to strike in Masvidal who used to be a 155er is going to be a better matchup than the guy who can strike and can do jiu-jitsu but prefers to wrestle and was never and couldn't make 155 if his life depended on it I tend to think that's just going to be fairly obviously the fight with Masvidal is just going to be the better fight for him. Might lose both, but still the better fight. All right. Mr. Thomas, I feel as though being an explosive athlete with power in MMA can be a curse because it incentivizes you to rely on power without solidifying a technical foundation. If you look at Jeremy Stevens and Mike Perry, they are the embodiment of this, this person writes. Jeremy is pretty much the same fighter he was 10 years ago. I think that's a little unfair. And instead of refining his craft, he just banks on his power. Again, I think that's unfair. Every single fighter considered to be in the GOAT discussion doesn't have abnormal power. Thoughts? Listen, there's probably something to the idea. Um, 
and it's something a lot of us have wondered. If you have big power naturally early on, how? why does it seem to be the case that they don't have the same level of detail about striking as someone like Anderson Silva, who's got great knockouts, to be clear, but a lot of that is from razzle-dazzle, timing, misdirection, brilliant accuracy, you know, all the things that had made him in his prime what was really special, right? In boxing, even if you have abnormal power, um, there's just going to be scenarios where you're not going to be able to leverage that as much. There's going to be, um, um, you know, good boxers are really hard. As I mentioned, good boxers are just really hard to hit, right? So yes, Deontay Wilder with as big of a power as he has, has gotten pretty far, but as you can see, it's got some limits. So it's true both in MMA and boxing, but I think it's hyper true or especially true in MMA because the minute you put on those four-ounce gloves, you realize that that you're not muting someone's power that much. So whereas in boxing, you really have to have, again, outside of heavyweight, you know, you can debate this, but or outside of Deontay Wilder's power, certainly you can debate this, but in general, across the weight classes, you really have to have good ring craft and footwork and balance and shot selection and fight IQ if you want to succeed because having good power matters, certainly, but the power is not... I think as overwhelmingly visible at scale as it is in MMA. I think it's one reason why women's MMA is better because they land with authority on each other. Whereas in women's boxing, you see a little bit less of that. Actually, a lot less of that, I would argue. And uh, also the shape of the ring forces you know, a certain reality. And of course, people are competing from single age all the way up to you know, by the time they retire. So there's just this real expertise and craft and people are hard to hit. And you have to get really good at being not hit and then hitting, right? So it's all these different factors that go into it. But the gloves are probably a real one. In MMA, uh, you're going to get hit more because there's so many things to look out for. And so if you have big power, it just is a sparring ender. It's a fight ender. It just shows up so often that this refinement process doesn't really happen. I'd also argue, this doesn't happen as 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 neatly, I would also argue that because you're typically not competing, um, you know, maybe some of them train in boxing at a single digit age, but you're not really training with four ounce gloves at age eight or nine. Uh, and so you start that process a little bit later as well. Now, to your point, you do see people with beautiful MMA striking who don't have big power. Fair enough. Um, so that's not, you know, again, it's going to be a combination of factors or different situations related to different people. But yes. It appears to be true across both sports that to the extent you have monstrous power, it will in many ways often inhibit your technique. It's not totally true. Um, um, you can find examples where people had big, good big power and they were still pretty technical. George Foreman um, is a great example of that. I think he had good power. Uh, I also thought Ernie Shavers had pretty decent technique. Marvin Hagler was not a weak puncher by any stretch of the imagination. Um so you can you can find some you can find some to be sure, but uh, yes, there there does appear to be some kind of a relationship between the two. How can we determine a fair and objective way of measuring fighter pay? Comparing fighter pay in the UFC to other sports doesn't seem like apples to apples. Dana is obviously biased and snarky when he repeatedly says you don't know how, anything about how our business and how it's run when responding to critics arguing that fighters aren't being compensated fairly. Does he have a point, though? The UFC is its own unique business entity. and Who can argue confidently either way fighters are underpaid or not if they don't understand the full ins and outs of the business? 
Well, I have to tell you, that's not a concern you should have to worry about. This is principally what that court case in Nevada is about. I had a conversation with Paul Gift about this, I want to say two weeks ago or so. Paul Gift is the economist who works, uh, he's a professor out of Pepperdine University. He also um, uh, is under, I think, MMA Analytics might be his Twitter handle. Uh, and he writes for Bloody Elbow on occasion. Uh, he has basically made the point clear, if you just look at what the court case is, there is this, um, God, what are the two different terms? There's like wage share versus like wage level, I think, is the two different ways. Essentially, the plaintiffs in this case, uh, they brought in this economist by the name of Hal Singer, who brought in an argument to be made where he showed these models about why the fighters were underpaid and what the mechanisms were that were depressing wages. Um, the defendants in this case, which would be Zufa, they brought in a different expert who had a slightly different model and, has, and a different conception under that model that showed uh, they were not underpaid. And so you might be asking wh whose model is right. Well, folks, that's what the judge is about to decide. This will be, this is all at this point, your argument, my argument, Dana's, anybody's doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is you had one economist on one side, you had another economist on the other side, they had two different models underpinned by two different kinds of ideas about what wages should be and what mechanisms make what they are. They presented their cases to the judge and the judge will basically decide which of these holds, uh, he decides is more convincing. And uh, once that happens, you will either see a great day for the plaintiffs or a great day for the defendants. Uh, if you are looking for more information about those models, you can Google the work of Paul Gift, or uh, I think John Nash has done some work on it as well, plus um, some of Josh Gross's stuff over pre previously at The Athletic, and then some of the stuff over at uh, MMA Payout. They have gone into detail about these models. Um, some of the things they mention, uh, although it is not fully spelled out by either the plaintiff or uh, the defendant in this case, but one thing they both agreed on was that marginal revenue product was a way to measure what the headliners, the major, major headliners brought in. So the common example about marginal revenue product would be the following. If you had a concert and you had sold 10,000 tickets, right, and then after you sold 10,000, you put out a press release saying we signed this band, we'll just call that band X band, and then the instant you announced them, you sold an additional 10,000 tickets, right? So it was they brought that extra audience by virtue of their uh, uh, appearance on the on the concert bill, um, whatever the amount of tickets at the rate that you sold them for, that's their marginal revenue product. Now the fighters are not entitled to 100% of the marginal revenue product, but they are entitled to some of it. And if you actually look at the math on what the headliners, and we're talking about a very small number here, your Joneses, Cormiers, your Rouseys, your Connors, your Diaz's, at this point your Masvidal's, things like that. If you're asking what they get, what share of the marginal revenue product they receive, the math tells us that the UFC headliners receive about 8.5% of marginal revenue product. 8.5%. Now, if you want to say it should be closer to 50 or 60 or even 80 or 90%, I think you'd be well within your right to say it. They make 8.5% based on the amount of time um, that Paul Gift had under, uh, undergone to study them. 8.5%, not 85%, single digit. That's how much they had drawn. If you're asking about the rank and file, honestly, that is going to be a function of if there's ever a union or something like that where they can negotiate based on leverage, some kind of livable amount of money for new entrants, uh, some kind of wage increase. It's believed you wouldn't get 50-50 because there aren't multiple teams bidding on you. It'd be single entity. 
So the idea that you get 50-50, you don't have that kind of a leverage, but that it might be significantly more than what they have. So maybe double what they have from 18 to, let's say, 35 or 36%. So that's about what you could expect. Let's say somewhere in that ballpark. That's probably what you're looking at there. These are the, you say objective and fair. I mean, it really depends on whose idea of what's objective and what's fair. But these, these let's call it these common methods of wage increase or these common methods of, uh, at least in the case of the headliners, um, measurement of their, of their, um, what they get, what they've given to the process. There are some tools at our disposal that we can use. So those are the things I would look at. And again, in every way you want to slice it, they're underpaid, right? I mean, in every way. Um, so there you go. Uh, thoughts on Colby attacking Dustin Poirier and mentioning his wife and daughter. Do you think Dustin will go up a weight class to fight him? Did he mention his wife and daughter? Because if he did, that is probably not great. Um, yeah, man. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? There are no lines he won't cross. I guess except maybe going after Trump. I guess he wouldn't do that. But um, everything that you consider taboo, he's going to hit it. So... Uh, you know, he went after Usman's father who was incarcerated. Uh, you know, obviously Dustin is a bit of a family man and going after uh, people who are, you know, largely considered off limits. It's, uh, it's you know, it's uh, unjustifiable, but it is altogether inevitable. It's just, it's just the way he does it now. Um, and I, well, to an extent, I suppose always, but very especially now, right? Uh, okay, 251, 252, and 253 all have headliners. Where do Connor and Masvidal fit in? See, this is what I was talking about. I didn't put up any videos uh, after the McGregor Silva video because I've been working with some different stuff here in, in, the, in my studio, so I just didn't have a whole lot of time. But here's one thing that really occurred to me. I think I tweeted about it very briefly, which was, you know, I, I said this, I think, on... I, I, I know I made one video about it, and I think I said something about it I want to say on one of these chats. Like, don't hold me to that. I'm not entirely certain that's true, but I think that's true. Namely, you have John Jones sitting out. You have Henry Cejudo sitting, or whatever he want to call what he's doing. You have Connor sitting out. You have Masvidal sitting out. Nate Diaz sort of is in a perpetual state, it seems, of sitting out or whatever you want to call that state too, but not certainly not actively taking fights, right? And you're like, wow, man, that's, that's a lot of heavy hitters who are not competing. It is good for them to sit out in the sense that it, definitely generates bad publicity for the UFC to the point where even Rogan had Andrew Schultz, a comedian on the podcast. And the comedian at that point is asking him, Hey, how come I keep hearing about this? Right? Fair enough. Because it's the steady drumbeat of bad news. And it's been dogging them, you know, for a long time, really. Um, but it never seems to materially impact their business. It never seems to ever amount to anything. I mean, the fact that Josh Gross when he was at ESPN, put together this outside the lines piece, which, by the way, it turns out was quite prescient in what they were saying. I think much of what they had reported is is vindicated at this point, um, which was not necessarily the way it was received when it came out. But even what was that? I mean, twenty ten. I mean, when that came out, twenty eleven or something, twenty twelve maybe. Not not uh, not recently, and and yet here we are still with these same issues. And if anything. Their visibility has gone up. They have become a more successful business. They become a smarter business. 
They've become more nimble. Like, it hasn't in any way damaged them. So it definitely has a steady drumbeat where they're kind of getting known for it at this point, but it hasn't... We've not really crossed into any territory where something actionable has happened. And in part because the UFC is quite savvy. I don't know to what extent they've done any union busting, but certainly on Capitol Hill, they have done a very good job of making sure that the Ali Act just dies in committee routinely. Um, they have been very successful at that. So uh, we'll see what happens with the lawsuit. You know, they've been fighting that obviously tooth and nail. But this is my point. It's like, dude, you have all those people sitting out and yet they were still able to announce headliners or it was certainly they announced some and then there was reports on others all the way up through October, or I should say up to rather October. And all of them were great. Now, I don't know how good the cards are going to be, although 251's card looks phenomenal. Um, we'll see what happens with 252 and 253, but the headliners are all great. 251 looks great. You have six titles going to be up for grabs between now and October 1st. This is what I mean. It's like, dude, do people miss Connor? Of course they miss Connor. Are they going to miss Jones? No doubt about it. Henry to an extent? Sure. Nate, all that stuff. But, but the machine just keeps on going. And I'm not saying that they take a hit or uh, they, don't, excuse me, they don't take a hit or that there might not be better ways to do it or you know whatever kind of consideration you want to add on, fine. But the world just keeps turning. And the UFC kind of knows that it's going to keep turning because every time they've dealt with one of these situations, the world just kept turning. So this is why it's like all these fighters who want to sit out, I understand it, but it's like it's all just a half measure. And, I, you know, do with your life what you want to do, man. If you don't want to compete because you don't feel like these are equitable terms and you have principles you want to uphold, I think their arguments about being underpaid are, to a man, correct. To a man, they are correct. The question is, what gets you from where you are to where you want to go? And the answer is, without you, whatever your view on the UFC trying to put on that show on April 18th, right? Some of you thought it should, definitely should have gone. Some of you probably didn't. Probably more so if you thought that they should have. But here, here's the point. Forget your preference about it. The UFC at that time was willing to go to Native American territory and put on a show absent, they can say whatever they want, but absent the purview of an athletic commission with their own protocol that had never been really examined by any commission and uh, in a state that was at the earliest stages of lockdown. And the only reason they stopped is because their parent company basically told them to. So what does that tell you? If it is the law and they have to obey it, the UFC will never, I suspect, run afoul of it. They will always be in compliance. They understand that you must be in compliance with what the law states in order for you to do something in this country. But if they don't have to stop, they're not going to. Unless they are absolutely, quite literally, forced to do it, they are not going to. So all these fighters sitting out think they're going to force the UFC to do it. Maybe. Maybe if more join them and we really get to a tipping point. Um, sure. Maybe if it gets to the point where ESPN steps in and says, Jesus, like we need these fights on the, on the channel. Like, what are you doing here? Maybe, maybe that will be a thing. Okay, fair enough. Maybe we can get there. Um, I don't know. There could be some other plausible scenarios. But my hunch, to be honest with you, is at least for now and for the foreseeable future, that's not going to work, the fighter sitting out. 
And my real belief is if you really want to affect changes to your money, money that I think quite explicitly they are entitled to, you, you I mean, you, you got you to gotta do the hard part. The hard part is the union. The hard part is the lawsuit. The hard part is the Ali Act or, you know, um, taking their language to court about the bout agreement or, you know, any of those concrete steps. Everything else, you know, very, very unconvincing that that will work. Very unconvincing. Um, what are Rose's chances in the rematch? Also, could you talk about how good her footwork is? Love the show over in Manchester. That fight island card, man, is something else. Could you rate it? Um, I don't know how it stands top 10 cards, but it's, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about it. I mean, that was the funny part about the card. It's like you could nitpick if you wanted to the three title fights. So, for example, here's what I mean. You could say, well, Jan versus Aldo, I mean, it's supposed to be Jan versus insert Sterling or whoever, right? It's supposed to be somebody who was deserving in that division. Okay, and it's not. And you can go the, the, the co-main. You could say, well, you know, um, you could argue if you wanted. You could argue, you know, Holloway is certainly a, um, a beloved figure, but it should be somebody new, right? I mean, he lost thoroughly the first time. Not like, got super beat up, but the cards were not close. And then you could go and look at the main event, and you could say, that's, that's Masvidal's fight. But here's the reality. Like, go back, go the other way. Honestly, you could make a case, and I, actually I will make the case. I think that Burns versus uh, – I absolutely support Masvidal. That is his fight. He should have gotten it, no doubt about it. But you're asking me which fight I like more? Honestly, I kind of like Burns versus Usman more. I think that Burns' submission ability on the ground mixed with some of his wrestling and sort of understanding of Usman, um, presumably in a bigger cage – I think is going to make that a striking affair. And if it's a striking affair, I think Burns is very competitive, to be quite candid with you. If it's a striking affair with Masvidal, it's very, very competitive. In fact, Masvidal, I think, would tune up Usman if that was the case. But um, while he has good submissions and good wrestling, I tend to think that he would get spammed with takedown attempts by Usman in a way that Burns probably won't. Go to your co-main event. Okay, uh, Volkanovski won pretty handily on the cards, but was each round some kind of dramatic beating no was he that much better than Holloway not really um and then later in the fight Holloway was able to go to the body so you think well maybe he can make an adjustment and even if you thought it should have been Korean zombie it's not like are you gonna sit here and tell me that Holloway versus Max 2 or excuse me um, Holloway versus Volkanovski 2 is some kind of like scrub ass fight no it's easily the two best featherweights that we have okay so then you go to Jan versus Aldo I mean there's no argument to make that Aldo is the most deserving, but since when did that matter during the middle of a pandemic? And can I really tell you that Aldo won't be exciting? He did fight very ably and overperformed against Marais. So you just go down there, and like the sum total of, of it is, if you want to nitpick, you can nitpick. But the truth is, they're all great fights in their own regard, and when you put them all on one card, you just seem like an asshole if you go through and say, well, this is not great, and that's not great, and that's not great. I mean, dude... You know, they're all on one card, and the other two fights on the card are pretty good, too. By the way, also, Frankie Edgar is going to be on this card at Bantamweight. Amanda Hebos taking on Paige Van Zandt. I mean, you know, it's just like you can't really complain about it. So where does it rate top 10 all-time cards? You know, I don't know, but it's a very, very, very good card. In terms of Rose's chances, the other fight on the main card against Andrade, I mean, as long as she was at distance, she was smashing it was just when she got up and close, and I tend to think that won't happen a second time. So I do like Rose's chances, but if you're Andrade, you also know to the extent you can rough her up, to the extent you can make it a close fight, by close I mean quite literally close, 
Uh, obviously, the fight gets a lot more winnable. You saw again Jacek go out there and beat her in that way by keeping distance and sticking behind the jab. That's what she really specializes in. I think Rose specializes a little bit less in that kind of a thing, so it's a little bit more of an adaptation that she has to make to get there. So I still like Rose's chances uh, because at distance, Andrade can't, Andrade can't touch her uh, figuratively and literally, but it's a harder thing for her to maintain over the course of five if she can't put her away. So love it. Love the rematch. Love everything about it. It's a great fight. What's your take on the clinch game of Peter Yan and how it might play into the Aldo fight? I was re-watching some of his highlights and striking on the clinch break seems to be one of his strongest sides. His favorite fight is a great example. Yan attempts to strike or block on almost every break and throws a variety of techniques. Um, the KO he scored came from a knee he threw on the break. It didn't reach, so he adjusted it and turned it into a front kick. Yeah, um... I tend to think that will be relevant. I am going to be very curious to see how Jan fights him. Does he fight him at kickboxing range under the assumption that Aldo doesn't throw leg kicks anymore and is going to be much more at the short end of his range if he keeps it there? Or is he going to look to get in that mid-range, that boxing range, and then just be first to the punch quicker and then pressure Aldo into bad situations? I don't know. I don't know. So to the extent it's the latter and he can pressure and it gets close, sure, it's relevant. But there's a big part of me that wonders, and again, truly I do not know, um, how much it'll be uh, a part. Because, you know, a big, another big part of Jan's game, yes, he definitely likes to pressure forward, no doubt about it, and then lay the hammer on you with his boxing. But he also has like you know, really good spinning back kicks and intercepting kicks as people turn. So that's a big part of his game too. It'll be interesting. Uh, Luke, Cody Garbrandt had an interview telling Sean O'Malley to get a few more wins, and when he's in the top five, Cody would fight him. Paraphrased, of course. In your opinion, does Sean need more wins, A, um, to be a serious competitive risk to Cody, and B, does he need more wins to deserve the fight? What's, uh, okay, so here's the thing. I, I tend to think that if Sean got that fight right now, it actually would be competitive, but I don't like it. Uh, and I'll tell you why. You're asking me which KO I think is more impressive, Cody's or O'Malley's. I'm going to tell you it's Cody's. Now, understanding that I love Sean's KO, and he's nothing but the coolest guy maybe in all of MMA. Uh, and his argument, I think, is not a bad one, which is if you look at the mechanical way, the strategic way that I threw the punches and then set them all up, right, mechanically and then strategically, it's just a lot cleaner of a KO. That is true. On the other hand, Cody had to fight a much tougher fighter who is very clever and very smart. And I just did, as I mentioned, a whole breakdown on that fight. One of the keys from that Cody fight, if you guys didn't see the breakdown, there were many keys to it, but a few of the big ones were both guys maintained kickboxing range. Um, if you look at the numbers, they were both very low in terms of thrown and successfully strike in terms of their uh, significant strike output. So the volume was depressed for both. Uh, for both, they had record levels of targeting the legs over targeting the body or the head because they were trying to figure each other out at distance before closing that distance. And even when they tried to close the distance, they had a real hard time making good use of it. That is true both for Cody as well as it is for Rafael. They were really, really, they, this was a tough fight for both guys. And so you saw Cody really use these camouflaging level changes to disguise his kicks, disguise his punches, disguise his distance closing, 
and he was never really able in the center of the cage to have very good effect with his boxing. It was only when he was either behind the two black lines or he had a Sun Sal behind the two black lines that boxing became a real key component. Not just not just behind it, but like well behind it. Um, so that's where the end of the first, by the way, go and look at it, and the end of the second round comes into play. Cody had a hard time finding, um, he was always short with the right. Um, not always, but he, he missed more right hands than he landed because he simply could not get uh, closer to Rafael Sunsound. You could say, oh, that's because Cody's not good. No, he was doing a really good job of disguising it and making it work for other strikes. It's just, dude, Sunsound was clever. He's very, very clever. And uh, it was him standing behind the fence where he could not move except potentially laterally and waiting on a Sun Tzu to come in. He actually leans into it to bait him. You know, what's a way where you can get like a, where uh, you can, you know, you can use head movement to like trick somebody? Give him a target. And then when they attack the target, remove it and then replace it with something else. He did it. He actually, he, you watch a Sun Tzu come in and as a Sun Tzu is coming in, Cody's feet don't move, but he leans into it to give a target. And then when he gets close enough, then he dips. Uh, and then he cracks him in this sort of surprise uh, effort. That's very difficult to pull off. So was it as mechanically uh, brilliant as what Sean had pulled off? No. Uh, is it a work of art what Cody produced? Not a doubt in my mind. That is a very hard KO to come by in the way that he did it, in the way that Asun Sal was fighting. A natural counter-striker, too, who can take advantage of any of your, let's say, excesses if you're Cody. So that is just, to me, significantly more impressive. And certainly, I think we could all agree, just much more difficult to pull off. So I would tend to think that O'Malley might be competitive. And who's to say he might even win? I just think probably his chances of winning right now are not great, are not as great as they could be in the future. I think Cody deserves a higher-ranked opponent at this point. And listen, Sean is not done growing. He still has room to get better. As good as that kid is, and he is quite good, I think we can all agree, he's not done being as good as he is. He's going to get better. And so let's give him commensurate fights to build him into the best version possible. Here's the good news. If Cody sticks around, and he's still a young guy too, uh, and keeps winning, not every fight, but you know, relevant to the top of that division, they're on a collision course. It's just that jumping it right now just seems hasty. So I can't really sit here and tell you that Sean would have no chance. I just think it's not the right time. Let's build it when Cody is still where he is and Sean has risen. And by the way, at the speed he's going, that's not too long from now. You know, I mean, they can't find him a guy to last a round. He's just smoking these guys. This is nothing to him. So I say give him like a John Dodson, you know. Give him somebody like in that top 10, top 15 that, um, that's a good test. That's a good test. You beat Dodson, you beat somebody else, okay, well, then you're there, right? Um, what are your thoughts on Chael Sonnen's reaction to fighters' pay? He seems to not believe that fighters are underpaid. Well, I did not see um, his reaction, so I could not comment on the specificity of it. But uh, I'd be curious to hear, because candidly at this point, I don't know what the argument could be from anyone, fr from anyone. Uh, again, if you want to look at who was, the, um, who was the expert witness for the UFC, 
who was the expert witness. It was, um, God, I forget his name, Peter something. You could look at his model and decide if that is convincing to you. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's just not, this is, I mean, not only is it true that I think that the fighters are underpaid, I don't even think it's a very hard argument to make. You know, whatever tool of uh, economics you would like to employ, you may, um, and it might give you a variety of different responses. But you know, here it's pretty simple. I gave you the marginal revenue product. There is clear evidence at this point to suggest that the fighters, uh, beyond what the brand brings in, uh, generate a significant portion of the UFC's overall revenue. And again, relative to what other athletes in a coordinated way have leveraged for themselves is a fraction of that. If you put those mechanisms in place, the pay would go up like that. You could not do that with Strike Force, which it was revealed their pay was, uh, I think, 64, 65% of what they generated went to the fighters. Bellator, it's been determined, pays out a mid-40s. They wouldn't have much revenue left to give. Maybe you could get more concessions from them because the entity is not as powerful. Like boxers can get sometimes 80% of the overall gross revenue. So I guess you could do it under that idea. But under the idea that it's a 50-50 split under most um, conceptions of, sh of revenue share, uh, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no way to go but up. Right, so this is not, um, you know, what those numbers would be specifically. You know, there is certainly a debate to be had, and what they could effectively negotiate for on their own behalf. Fine, this is a debate that I would leave to the labor negotiators. But uh, it's it's fairly clear there is value that the fighters bring individually, a John Jones, a McGregor, a whoever, where we can measure their marginal revenue product, and then as an entity. There is value that the fighters bring collectively where they can collectively, they are used to create shows, host events. At those events, the UFC sells ads against it, right? There's ads on the uh, Octagon. There is Reebok. There are ads that are sold by ESPN on the network. Um, when there are fans, there is LiveGate concessions, uh, uh, merch, the whole nine. Um the fighters collectively are a part of that revenue generating process, even if they are rank and file, right? Um, if you're uh, 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 ESPN, you're selling ads during one of your broadcasts by virtue of, yes, the UFC helping to do all of this and putting this all together. They are absolutely entitled to a big share of the money, but the fighters clearly are, as an entity, um, a key portion of the value equation here. And as a consequence, they are helping to generate this revenue. Where you want to draw that line, you certainly can. But it seems like um, in an environment where they have not, uh, as an entity and as a whole, leveraged that collective strength for revenue generation, it's not possible to think that they have maxed it out. And again, every time we evaluate it, we don't get even anywhere close to uh, commensurate standards, either by what it would be for a purse bid between promoters with an Ali Act or as an entity with a union working in concert um, with the UFC to you know, reach a collective bargaining agreement. So um, I don't know the specifics of what he, or frankly, what I've heard some stuff that Cormier said, or even you know, uh, any, anybody. There's, again, I'll, 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 if you send it to me, I'll take a look at it, because um, obviously, you know, Chael's a bright guy, but to me, there's not, there's, there's no argument you could make to say that they are they are fully compensated. Um, it doesn't exist. It, not, not a good one. 
it is by virtue of every con- virtual, every conceivable consideration, they are not merely underpaid, but woefully underpaid. Uh, if Showtime aren't able to ship Morning Combat merchandise outside of the U.S., could they cut some kind of deal with you so that you can have designs in your own merch store? I will talk to them. I don't know. If you guys want to, I think it's, uh, let me see. I think the website is, I think it's uh, show.store.com slash morning combat. Is that right? No, that's not right. Fuck. Uh, maybe it's show.com slash. They gave us a dedicated URL. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'll have to find it. Um, but if you go to uh, if you go to the Showtime store, so store.show.com, and you just plug in our information, you'll there's a bunch of merch up there, uh, mugs, hats, tumblers, the whole nine yards. So you can catch it all there if you want. Um, I will talk to them about Canada. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. They they just put it up this week. So uh, hi Luke, if you had the time to do a dissertation, what MMA topic and non MMA topic would you like to research? And someone who reads, do you ever go to a university? Do I go to university? Yes. Um, I went to university. I have a bachelor's degree. I tried to triple major. They would not let me. So I double majored and minored poli sci and philosophy. Um, Try to get a history major as well. They would not let me. Although I have technically have the credits for it. So I think I'm a triple major, but whatever you want to say. Um, okay. People are like, oh, being a triple major hard. Well, I took a lot of AP classes in high school. Um, some I did not do so well on, but many I did. And that was enough where I came into my freshman year with, I think I had almost two years of credits already done. Um, I had to get more than that because you have to fulfill specific requirements rather than just having aggregate amount of credits. Um, but I never took the most credit hours I ever took in a semester ever was 12. And usually 15 is the, is the common one. I never took, I never took 15. I took 12 or less every time. So I was able to really focus on what I wanted to do. Um, so if I wrote a dissertation, I would not write a dissertation on MMA. If I wrote a dissertation on anything, it'd be utterly unrelated to MMA. What topic would I like to research? Boy, that is a great question. Um, hmm. That's such a great question. Well, let's see. What am I reading now that really, well, I wouldn't know if that would tell me anything. Um... I got a new book. I'll show it to you. This is a, I've not started it. So I just got it yesterday in the mail. Uh, this is a book by Stephanie Kelton. It's, it's MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. And um, she's an economist out of, uh, I think, Stony Brook University. I think that's right. Where is she a professor? If I'm not mistaken. She was a chief economist at the U.S. Senate Budget Committee, and she's a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. She essentially argues um, in the current state that we're in that austerity measures would be bad for the economy. What we would need is actually greater spending, but I have not read her case. I do not know. I could not defend it or argue for it. I against it. I don't know anything about it yet. I just bought it because it looked interesting. Um, what would I like to study? <sighs> Probably something deeper into anti-doping and the psychology behind people who do and don't 
and then moral panics and the role that media plays. Probably something in there because I tend to think we cannot have an honest debate about it. I tend to think most of the debate is, as you guys know, uh, encumbered by moral panic, people stating false beliefs that they don't actually have, and um, uh, dishon from both sides, I suppose, but dishonest points of contention. Um, the Overton window is really narrow in it, and I would like to see if it can be expanded. But if so, how and by what way? So probably something along those lines. Um, curious on your thoughts for what Max needs to do differently this time in his rematch with Volkanovski. It seemed like Max struggled to fight long as he normally does, and the leg kicks played a major factor in putting a hiccup in his unique stance switching. Well, listen, let me tell you something about um, my level of, and I'm going to put the words here in quotations, expertise. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm doing this in air quotes. Uh, I use the word expertise in quotes because I'm, I'm just trying to sort of, uh, my, my skill uh, level in, in technique and technique understanding and breakdown. Um, I do not have very good skill, I don't believe, in looking at somebody and um, what they're doing or missing and then how to address it going forward unless it is glaring. So for example, if I watch low-level pros or if I watch amateurs, yeah, I can kind of pick up on what they're doing as shortcomings and be like, maybe there's some things to consider doing differently. But when you get to that level that they're at, that is above my pay grade. I can look at what they're doing after the fact and I can usually get a sense of what's happening and why and what it means. I'm less, I don't really have much of an ability to look at that and say, oh, here's what Max could do differently. This is so far advanced, I think, than folks realize um, that it's not, that's not something I would be, I should be trusted with. And I don't do that for a reason because I'm not very good at it. And again, you could say, you know, uh, you know, what am I good at? I'm better, certainly, at a bare minimum, after the fact, absorbing the, the weight of things that I am prescribing. If you want to say what was missing the first time around, the key, the couple of key considerations, but the big one was Max was just not really able to effectively pressure Volkanovsky because to the extent that he wanted to, there was just this moving target constantly, fainting, changing stances, changing looks, um, taking advantage of gaps. Uh, he was reacting a lot, and he couldn't physically push him backwards all that well um, and reduce his motion. And once the motion was reduced, there was a couple times where he was able to. He was able to land in particular to the body. But one of the things that Max was just up against was he was doing a lot of guesswork trying to narrow this guy's movement. And in the process, he would either get hit and the guy would be gone or it'd be a leg kick and the guy would be gone. So when I say hit, I mean like above the body to the face or something. Uh, and, and often the leg kick. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how do you take that away? Because Volkanovsky, I just don't believe, is going to be able to take Max down. I don't suspect that Max is going to be able to take Volkanovsky down. So this is going to be on the feet again. And the question is, what do you do to re if you're Max to take that away? How do you put him in a position where he can't faint, trick, strike, and go. Because uh, that was a big key about what he was able to do. How do you take that away? I leave that up to his very capable coaches. Um, but I look forward to seeing what they come up with to better inform my judgment going forward. So, um, you know, when it comes to this kind of a thing, anybody who's an analyst, they're going to be uh, good at certain things and bad at others. They're going to have certain occupational skills and others. 
I'm just going to be honest with you and say that's not a strong suit of mine. And I don't want to wade into it for fear of saying something, you know, outrageously stupid, which I probably would if I tried. So, how quickly would Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky knock me out if a hostile encounter were to occur? What kind of a fucking stupid question is that? Yes, how quickly would a UFC level, a former champ in this particular case, beat a uh, regular old civilian in a fist fight? Yeah, fucking fast. I mean, that, does that answer your question? Uh, initial thoughts about UFC 251 from the location to the card, anything in between. I never really got super interested in the whole Fight Island thing. I grew up, you know, when Bodog Fight was around and they were fighting on the beach. It's fun for five seconds and then you're like, oh, right, they're just on a beach. And then you don't give a shit anymore. So I didn't really care about that. That didn't mean anything to me. Uh, so they're in Abu Dhabi. Listen, as long as the place is cooled, unlike last time, which I don't know that it will be, but let's assume for for now that it is. Great. Uh, the card is fucking sick. It's amazing. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, We'll see what the safety protocols look like out there. I have no idea what they're going to look like. Um, you know, I have as many questions about the same kind of things you guys would, but on the card and I, I, the location, I don't, I mean, they, the UFC does not particularly excel. One of their production things, they're good at many things in production, but one thing I think we could all probably agree is the shows typically don't look that different show to show, city to city, not wildly anyway. The B-roll does from like the blimp outside, but that's it. Um... So that doesn't really, provided that the there's air conditioning and it's climate controlled inside the facility and it will probably look not too dissimilar from any other place in the current condition, which is to say the pandemic. Card is awesome. Um, yeah, it's great. You know, we'll see how things go. Which country, which country has the best striking jujitsu wrestling and heart? Okay. Um, where did the best strikers come from? <laughs> well, that's changing a lot, isn't it? Um, I would have said, uh, let me look at something here. Wrestling is still going to be North America, right? The United States. I think that's still pretty clear. The heart, I don't know, your Russians and your Brazilians, they seem like they're pretty hardy people, right? All right, so if we're looking at good strikers, um, well, first of all, the home of boxing right now is England. I mean, you can say that matter-of-factly. That's just, that's, just, that's just true. You know, the UK is where it's at when it comes to boxing in so many weight classes and in so many, like in terms of fan appeal, like they're the, they're the kings right now of boxing, to be clear. So when you look at good strikers, Jesus, you know, obviously the uh, oceanic region produces some great ones with city kickboxing, um, Europe in general. Um, I think, you know, the Dutch have always been ahead of the game when it comes to kickboxing. Um, uh, you know, again, to the extent that they train boxing out of, out of Ireland and then the UK as well, that's big. Um, I don't know how to, I mean, you guys might have a better answer for that one than I do. I don't really have a strong response to that one. Jiu-Jitsu, um, you could either say Brazil or the United States for sure, and then heart is probably a wash, unless you want to say Russia. 
And again, maybe Brazil too. So the striking one, I don't know how to answer that one. That one's a tougher one for me to pinpoint. Because um, if it was kickboxing, it's a much easier question to answer. Um, if it's just MMA striking, it's a little harder. A lot harder, actually. All right. Is there any research comparing combat promotion revenue split by organization? Yes. Um, John Nash has done a ton of work on this. Wouldn't that be more of an accurate comparison and a more realistic goal than pro leagues? Uh, for example, what is the revenue split for top rank or PFL fighters? That, that I don't know. Although top rank would be operating under a different business model, right? So we'll have to see. Uh, or even individual pro team revenue split. But even that wouldn't work because those are employees and they have collective bargaining. How much does the Dallas Cowboys split with their players? In the NFL, I think it's just under 50%. Like, what is it, 48 something? These answers could change the whole conversation. If you're asking about other leagues, Strike Force was nearly between 60 and 70%, and Bellator is mid 40s. I don't know if we have a rev split for one or not, but your that, that Scott Coker was between the 60s and 70s and between the 40s and 50s. So there's a good answer for you. Um, let me get maybe one or two more. And then we'll get to the paid ones. How do you see the future of the UFC and their fighters? You might hear my daughter screaming. Uh, with all the talk about fighters only receiving 16% of what they're generating, do you think there'll be, able, there'll, there'll be a big shift? And if so, how will it shift and to where? There is no shift until they take the hard, the hard, the, the, the most difficult challenges are the ones, um, that will net the only rewards. Otherwise, I just, I'm very skeptical that this works. I am no expert and clearly don't know the logistics and everything that goes on financially with the UFC, but I don't see how the UFC pays the fighters so low for what they bring in. What is that money going towards, if not the fighters? Gosh, Apex, executive salary. Um, they haven't laid anybody off in the pandemic. Um, all that vertical integration that they've got going on. How are other major sports and organizations paying their athletes a higher percentage? And what are they spending their money on? Well, um, teams would spend money on facilities. Um, owners and teams would potentially spend it on uh, game facilities. Um, but they all have slightly different business models, right? There's no way in hell I'm getting 16% of what I'm worth at, for any job. It's not even within the same ballpark of the sports standards. Yes, but are you one of the few people in the world good at what you do? Because if you are, then you might. Or if you joined a union, you might get more. Um, also, not letting the fighters have big-time sponsorships is whack. Agreed. If you're going to pay them less, let them at least have sponsorships that don't have conflict of interest with Reebok. Yeah, that was always one of the confusing things for me when they did the Reebok deal. It's like, I mean, I get why they did it. I understand, right? Again, to take the lion's share of the rev that they feel like they're entitled to, but... It's like, dude, when you when you allow the fighters to have sponsors, that's just a way to offset pay. I have had jobs before where they let me take side gigs and then, you know, they would give me like a real shit raise. But like it was kind of understood between me and them, we're not going to be hard asses about you having these side gigs because they're going to pay you money that we don't feel like we have to. And it was just an easy way for them to get around it. But then when you take that away, it's like, okay, you're just going to make it worse, but all right. Um, 
I think there should be a fighters union and have fighters boycott the system because from the point of view of it, many of it doesn't seem right. Yeah, well, boycotting, uh, you can't do until you're an employee. So, I mean, you can individually just do your thing, but you can't, like, create a work stoppage situation. So, there's that as well. Uh, and then there's a question there. I'm kind of getting to the same thing I'd already been to. All right, it is 4.05. Let us go to the paid questions. Shall we? Oh, there are a fuck ton of these. All right. Hey, Luke, we sometimes hear criticism from commentary on the advice or lack of provided to the fighter in between rounds. What would you like to see or hear more from the cornerman if it were up to you? Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I think that this um, these pandemic shows, they're they're giving you a sense of which corners are better than others. I think before we didn't really know, and even now we're getting very limited information, but it is sort of showing that to you. You know, in the wake of what happened in the uh, Teixeira and Smith fight, um, I talked to Mark Montoya about it, but I also talked to a lot of other fighters and asked them what they preferred. And there were varied answers, but a lot of them did seem to indicate what DC had indicated, which was they prefer... Um, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more, maybe more than what you got out of Eddie Bravo in the Ferguson fight, or maybe Dean Thomas in the Woodley fight, or something like that. Um, but again, that's what works for Dean and Tom, uh, Dean and, and Woodley, and then certainly I think Ferguson has deep trust in Eddie Bravo. Um, so you know it's going to vary, but yes, if there was one criticism that did seem to stick more than others, it was that maybe like frantic all the time kind of stuff is a little bit much. Um, so what am I looking for? I'm looking to hear more from Trevor Whitman, to be honest with you. I'd love to bring him back, please. Thoughts on the new Run the Jewels 4 album? I've only heard that one song with Zach De La Rocha and um, uh, Pharrell. It was pretty good, but I've not heard anything else. I'm behind, y'all. Luke, what do you think the UFC should do once the Reebok deal expires next year? Assuming reverting back to the old model is unlikely, how could a new one brand exclusive deal benefit each individual fighter I keep saying this and I think it's true I don't think there are a lot of fighters who are really willing to go to the mat with the UFC they're very willing to boycott they're very willing to help produce bad press they're when I say boycott I mean like individually they're very willing to like take to Twitter but like here's what I would here's what I'm saying if the UFC came back and said we're gonna have a deal with Adidas right but even if they said we're gonna have our. We're just gonna have UFC sponsored gear because before Reebok they had UFC sponsored gear, and certain fighters would get it. If they did that, and then they said you can have like PFL does up to three or whatever four or five sponsors on it, um, but they'd be yours. You know, we'll take a cut, but you can have some. I bet you they would be significantly. I mean, not only less complaining, the complaint would virtually go away. Virtually go away. Fighters have this mentality about that. I'm not, I, any kind of pro athlete at the highest level is going to be like psychotically competitive, right? I mean, think about Michael Jordan in the last dance or pick your favorite athlete. They're just going to be committed to a process in a way we just couldn't ordinarily understand. However, fighters have a, a common thread to them where they don't like to complain, right? They don't want to be seen as complainers. 
as people who let outside forces dictate their success or stop them from what they're what they're doing. They have this real Horatio Alger can-do attitude no matter what the difficulty. So when MMA media will raise certain objections about things that are put in their way, they'll say, ah, I don't care. You know, oh, last-minute opponent or whatever it is, COVID-19 or blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter to me because they've got this idea about silencing doubt, about silencing this, you know, uh, about never giving in to these uh, outside forces. And so as a consequence, um, it makes them very amenable, believe it or not, to compromise. So they kind of realize as they get older in their career and they're not making the money that they want to in many cases, you know, maybe this deal isn't great for me. But honestly, however little you see now, if they just met them halfway and let them have some on the uniform, dude, it would make the job of people who think those deals are not fair much harder, even though you could still make the case that these guys under no circumstance should have to like go through approval through the UFC. Like it's their sponsors. It's on your broadcast. It's on their bodies. Split it. You know, you, you let, let them have it. Uh, that might be the right argument. It would actually be much harder to make if the UFC just met them halfway. I guarantee it. If they trot out uniforms and say you can have up to three sponsors on it and take a modest tax on them, and it, you know, so this like effectively ends up doubling, or maybe in certain cases tripling their um, revenue generation from the deal. They would be quiet. I honestly think that. Yeah, I was wondering about this too. Do we know anything about the working conditions? He put the slave laborers. We don't know if they were slave laborers. Well, let's, let's just call them the laborers who were used to construct the island in record time. The UAE and KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, are notorious for exploiting Filipinos and South Asians. True. Uh, that is notoriously true. What the conditions are with this one, I suspect they're probably right in line, but we don't know that. So, so we'll just have to see. In Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta says he'll never be the best because he's too small to fight Joe Lewis. Do you think it bothers 170 and under champions? knowing they would lose to unranked heavyweights. No, I don't. My best friend and I are starting a combat sports podcast. Any advice? Um, don't. <laughs> it's it, Don't do it thinking you're going to get rich and famous. I will let you know that up front. Um, any advice? Yeah. Um, Jesus. That's, uh, people ask for advice on this shit. I never know what to say. I don't know what you like. I don't know what you want to do. Um, on the books, the, the judo book, Falling Hard, is a good one I always mention. You should read Tao of Jeet Kune Do from Bruce Lee so you can finally disabuse yourself of the idea that he's the father of MMA, which he is certainly not. Um what else? What's some other ones you should read that are good martial arts books? Fighter's Heart, Fighter's Mind, Sam Sheridan, some good ones. Um, I've not read the Ken Shamrock book that uh, Jonathan Snowden wrote, but I'm sure it's good. Um, and then, I just don't read a lot of MMA books. But you can start there. Taking a snapshot of the top 15 ranked fighters within 135 and 145, in your opinion, more talent-rich and which seems more marketable? Probably 135 at this point. With someone like Conor McGregor, who is primarily a striker and only uses BJJ defensively, 
be able to walk into a hobbyist BJJ gym and submit 40-year-old dad bod black belts? Yes, probably. Probably. Uh, assuming that they're of similar weight and size. Black belts can submit or, I mean, you know, it's possible. I've, I've seen blue and purple submit them. You know, it happens. It's not like some kind of like impossible thing. Remember, training is not about competition. Training is about practicing. So there might be many situations where you're practicing and you're not very good at what you're practicing or it's not your best. And you're practicing against somebody who just happens to be better at that kind of a thing. Or there's a weight disparity or something. Some say the DC Stipe trilogy held up a heavyweight, but outside of them and Francis, it's just not great. What's your outlook on heavyweight after the trilogy? Yeah, that's where it's going to get interesting. I don't know because it depends who wins. If DC wins, he's just going to drop it, and so now you're going to have to have some kind of belt for it. If Stipe wins, I suppose he'll defend it, but it's probably going to be Francis in either case. You're going to get Francis versus Stipe too. So I guess you get that. But then the problem is you got Curtis Blades sitting right behind him. Blades has lost twice to Miochi, excuse me, twice to uh, Francis. I don't know what you do with that, you know. And then JDS has lost uh, to a lot of the top contenders, including Stipe, um, including Francis. Uh, Rosenstruck hasn't lost to Stipe, but he did lose to Fran Big. Fran I mean, there's just a lot of problems. So they're going to have to get some fresh blood there, which is why an eventual John Jones move up there makes a ton of sense if they can make it happen. Uh, let's see. Am I the only one that thinks Khabib and Ali are obsessed with Connor, ready to tweet on everything? That's how you manage to lose even after winning the fight in the octagon. I don't know. I don't uh, pay a ton of attention to that. Seems like very much of a waste of time. But listen, talking about Connor in any capacity gets a lot of attention. If I make a video about Connor, almost every time, not exclusively, but almost every time, it does well. Doesn't even matter if the video is stupid. <laughs> People just respond to it. So, you know, it's a it's a very shortcutish kind of way to have a, your voice heard. Could I get an update on Kinahan and Philip O'Connor interview status? Yeah, someone asked me about that today. I don't have any update for you just yet. Hey Luke, with all the media attention around fighter pay, blah blah blah. All right, stupid question, which I was able to miss favorite booze based on price range Ooh. Um, cheap would be Jim Beam top shelf would be Habiki um, something in between what was the good one I had the other day um, What's the good one I had the other day? Oh, I had two good ones, and they're they're very common. Uh, Eagle Rare and Buffalo Trace. Those are very very good. Any movies you'd seen lately that you could wreck or wreck? I saw one that was weird. Um, it was a Korean movie called The Man Standing Next, and it's a uh, it's a, sort of a true story. It's a true story, but it's you know somewhat interpreted. It's about the former, uh, essentially, uh, dictator of South Korea. Uh, South Korea was supposed to have this uh, democratic revolution, and they did. And then uh, one president just sort of stayed in power, essentially, for 18 years and tried to rule with an iron fist. 
and then was murdered by uh, the head of their version of the CIA. And there's a question about, is the guy a hero or is he a villain? Was he serving his own ends or was he serving the country's? And it's essentially tells that story from the perspective of the head of the CIA. And, uh, um, and the, the process he goes through by which he decides to ultimately murder and assassinate the president. And uh, it's got some great acting and some great scenes. It's a little wishy-washy in storytelling, but it's definitely worth checking out. So I saw that one. Um, you're going to laugh at this. I'd never seen it before. I saw Casino. I finally, finally saw Casino. That was very good, certainly. Um, what's another good movie I saw recently? I've seen so many. Not good movies, but I've seen a shitload of movies. You know a movie I saw that's dumb, but I liked it? Uh, I've seen it before, too. Predators, which is a sequel to Predator. Uh, but it's it's not like in the vein of like Predator 1 or Predator 2. Uh, it's Well, it's part of that. But it's like uh, it's got Adrian Brody, who is not... It was semi-convincing as an action hero. And uh, rather than, this is the premise, rather than, um, you know, the Predators showing up on Earth and fucking everybody up, the Predators, like, drop these people, I won't give much more away than that, on uh, a place and then hunt them there. And I'll just leave it at that. It's actually, it's stupid, but it's fun. Um, I saw that again recently. But the big one I saw recently that kind of I thought a lot about was, it's called The Man Standing Next. Check that out. Uh, hey, Luke, Pete Rubish shouted you out on Instagram. Fuck yeah, Pete Rubish, although you spelled Rubish wrong. Uh, a few weeks ago and said he should have you on his new podcast. Have you seen his new podcast? And can, would you, that interest you? I'd go on any podcast that uh, Pete Rubish would love for me to go on. Pete Rubish is the fucking man. He's got a new gym. I think it's called KOA, uh, COA. Uh, him and his, uh, I think, significant other opened it. And uh, Pete's a great guy, um, from what I can tell, and you know can lift a fuck ton of weight. So there you go. Rice or noodles? Well, I more commonly eat rice, but I prefer noodles. So there you go. Who is the most complete fighter in your opinion right now? Not the most popular, the most complete. I would say even after the loss, Ferguson. I don't think that's crazy. You know, who has the most well-rounded ability? Volkanovski's well-rounded. Um, really well-rounded. Gilbert Burns is really, really well-rounded. You know, uh, Masvidal's very well-rounded. Um, John Jones is pretty fucking well-rounded. Um, Demetrius Johnson's well-rounded. Those are some names you could go with. Could Ali manage some sort of union since he has half the around the roster and strong ties to PFL? that he could use as leverage, presumably, but I don't think in my conversations with him that that was something that interested him. Uh, you know, I, my understanding is that I think he would rather, um, and I don't want to speak for him, so I could be wrong about this, but I don't, I think, God, did I ask him about this when we had him on the MMA Hour? I asked him about the, um, the affidavit he submitted on behalf of the UFC arguing that fighter pay is better kept um, private. And I'd asked him about that. I don't know if I ever asked him about the union. I could be speaking out of turn, so I want to be very careful about that. But I can say there was a time around 2009 where the uh, managers wanted to get together to potentially sort of talk about what it would mean to work together. 
And my understanding is Ali was not part of that. Um, as to why, I don't know. But I do not get the sense that unionization is something that... Um, again, I don't know what he has said about this specifically, so I could be wrong, and I want to be very clear about that. I don't want to put words in his mouth or anyone else's. My understanding is that's not something he supports, but I could be wrong about that. Would judging fights retrospectively be more fair? Uh, yes. Yes, it would. More time to go over it. Remember, you have to judge fights in real time. How is that ever going to be better than judging it after the fact when you've had time to think about it and you have more time to do it? In almost every way, it would be better. But... Uh, how do you do that and then assign a winner? Like you need a winner instantaneously. So there's no real better method in terms of that. But in terms of like getting a clear assessment, yes, you can get a much better assessment later. Who would win between Khabib and Stylebender if they were the same size? Probably Nurmagomedov. Um, would you make of Dominique Foxworth's exchange with Dana on first take? And should the fighters seek the help from the NFLPA? NBA PA love from Senegal. Uh, yeah, I loved it. Right. And people were like, Oh, Dominic admitted he didn't know anything about UFC contracts. Right. Uh, who gives a shit? <laughs> who cares? He wasn't trying to have a full throated debate. He was trying to say, Dana, I've worked in sports unions in two different capacities. Uh, he didn't mention this, but he has a, a MBA from Harvard and, uh, is clearly a bright guy and was trying to explain to him, if you have numerous athletes at the top of a profession uh, consistently complaining year over year over year over year about pay, something is up. It cannot be that this is merely a coincidence. Um, you don't ever hear Mayweather complain, complain about pay. You do not hear Tyson Fury or Anthony Joshua or Deontay Wilder or Canelo complain about pay, do you? It doesn't happen. Um, Tom Brady was given a hometown discount. Like who's like Michael Thomas in, for the Saints or, uh, you know, Kirk Cousins or something. Some of these guys that got these novel deals for a time. You did not hear them complain about pay. You consistently hear UFC fighters uh, complain about pay. And so there's an argument to be made there. And he has said, I've looked over contracts. What do you want to say about that? And if Dana wants to say, well, you know, the argument there is not to lash out at Dominique. The argument is, well, that's a nice sentiment, Dominique, but I can tell you as somebody who is familiar with the particular details of their contracts, I think without making a specific argument, you are merely giving in to rumor-mongering and hearsay. Um, of course, yeah, at that point, you might reply, well, it's not rumor-mongering if it's coming actually from the fighters. So let me think, what would be a better thing to say than that? It would be um, a better argument would be to detail, detail that. It's like, well, you know, listen, Dominique, I'm happy to respond to any specific claim that you're making. But you're not making any specific claims. You're making a broad brush uh, assessment about a sport you barely understand whose business model you could not repeat to anyone if your life depended on it. And um, until you have such a particular critique, I don't know what to tell you, right? It's a little harsh, but it's direct. So he could have handled it that way. He sort of did it in a, in a, in a different way, which was, you don't know anything. You know, it's like, all right, well, sort of true, you know. But you have to really make it about, like, what is your argument? Is your argument that when people are upset they don't make a lot of money that they must be right? Uh, or is it about specific claim? If you want to make a specific claim, we can have that. But until such time, you know, what do you want me to say? But, you know, listen, the point about that, Dominique Foxworth, is merely just saying 
sort of like I've got an eye, I've got my eye on you kind of moment, right? Sort of what that's about. People keep asking about when Bigfoot's going to retire. I do not know. It's a better question for him. How do you see a fight between Justin and McGregor going? You know what? If Justin doesn't get put away early, he would do the putting away late, I tend to think. Um, but that's a tough fight for him early. That's a tough fight for Justin early. Really, it's a question of how much damage he would take and how long he would last. But I tend to think that McGregor's Achilles heel with his... Um, with his um, uh, cardio is something that he can probably improve time to time, it, it, you know. But against someone like Gaethje would be would manifest itself. And so, um, yeah, I don't have much more to say about it than that. But I tend to think that like striking for striking, McGregor's going to do well. But the question is, how long could he keep that up? If he had to. Why is Chael consistently on the UFC side on fighter pay? Probably because he agrees with it. Does he just view it where if a fighter isn't a draw, it's their own fault? So he isn't sympathetic? Again, I've not seen I, I People ask me this all the time. It's like, do you watch other videos? Yes, on occasion. On occasion. I saw some of his John Jones videos. And obviously his channel is like wildly popular. Uh, but the problem for me is, and this is true about analysts too, like when they're just talking about breaking down film or whatever, I can't look at it because what I, I didn't realize this about myself until several years had passed. If I watch it, or whether it's an analyst or it's another opinion maker or something, I end up just adopting what they're saying or I kind of repeat it or, or something. Uh, it, it, I end up just like being too influenced by it and I'd rather have my own ideas. So you guys keep asking me about things he said. I don't know what to tell you. I've not seen it. Um, if you want to send it to me, Luke, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I'll take a look. But I've not. But like people always ask me, like, who would be a good substitute for Dana? I think Chael would be. Chael already is a promoter, right, with Sug. And I think he thinks like a promoter. I mean, I think that's a business model that appeals to him. And I think he likes the way it works. And he was able to make it work for himself. He's a living proof that under certain conditions, right, you can profit from it. Um, Again, as much as you should, there's a different scenario, but I think he likes it. So that I think he would be a good a good a good um a good filling. Cormier appears to be that way as well. Where does Poirier go from here? I think he'll school hooker, but his career doesn't have clear direction. Probably the winner gets Ferguson, maybe. Each male uh Each male title is scheduled for fights between 185 and 205. Should Adesanya versus Costa be 252 or 253? Um, I don't know. I, I don't have a preference. It doesn't matter to me. Again, people asking about manager associations like Dominance MMA. Do they think MMA union more likely? I do not think so. Why doesn't Diaz fight for a championship? I can confirm he was offered the Woodley fight. I can also confirm that he was asking for 2x what they were offering and it just wasn't worth it for him. Do you like Sean versus Dominic? I thought about that one too. I do like that one. Not as much as some other ones because I wonder... Um, yeah, I do like it. Yes, because he's ranked 11th. And I think Sean's ranked in the top 15 now, so it's a fine fight to make. Yes, I'm okay with it. Favorite period of history to study, post-World War II. 
Where can I discuss sponsorship and advertising on your channels? LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Uh, How do you think Ronnie Coleman looked in them police shorts from the JRE podcast? I've not seen it yet, although he is obviously um, not in great physical condition. Uh, can tonight be the debut of Sip to Sip as you get trashed? Also, ever listen to Carcass or Death? Yes, both, and I like both. Uh, tonight, Showtime is going to be airing a bunch of Mike Tyson fights all in a row. And uh, me and Brian Campbell are going to drink and watch it. So be on the lookout for that. 10 p.m. East Coast time. I think we're going to start, though, at 945. Uh, let's see here. Do you think Gaethje's striking and leg kicks will be too much for Khabib to shoot for a takedown? I do not know. It is the million-dollar question. I have no way to answer that. Do you recommend a site to help research who needs to be put in office so we can end qualified immunity and get corrupted officials out? Jesus. I don't know who would be good to speak to that specific condition. Um, also, I don't know, like, unless that applied to the sheriff, I don't know that voting per se. Well, of course, yeah, no, I would. I just can't elect your own cops. Um no, I don't know what a good resource for that would necessarily be. I would just try to be more engaged in any kind of local election if you can. Someone here claims they have a bunch of degrees. That's sweet. Uh, thoughts on all the weight misses today. I mean, what do you guys want? Everyone, you know, is it unprofessional? I mean, the only one you can, I think you can really beat up is Roberson. But like the rest of them, it's like, dude, it's a pandemic, you know. People have been barely been able to train properly. You can't make the case to me that people are training just the same now as they were before. You just can't. It cannot possibly be the same. So if it's not going to be the same, and we are going to acknowledge that, why don't we just say, and the cards being what they are, you know, is tomorrow's card good? No, it is not good. I do not think it is good. I'm not going to watch it live. Uh, on the other hand, you know, do you want to have a little sympathy for some of these people, including UFC, trying to do what they have with the material that they have? I think you should. Kamar Usman won the title in dominant fashion and followed that up with a fight of the year. Can you think of another champion who receives the hate he does following that? Uh, not initially, but eventually John Jones was that way. Do you think you'll be on the Joe Rogan experience before Joe moves to Spotify? I doubt it. I was considering hitting him up and seeing if there was an opportunity in August, but I don't know if it's a good idea or not. And I think by that point, he'll be on Spotify. So I don't know. Probably not is the answer. Do you uh, ever vet authors and publications you've read? Mostly. If so, how? Uh, so good point. I find it discouraging how some publications can pull complete 180. Example, the New York Times in Bolivia, although they are hardly alone. Washington Post carried weight for them, too. No one reads the correction sections. Yeah, if you put out a false tweet, it'll get you know a gajillion retweets if it's something salacious. And then you put out the, uh, the correction tweet, and it gets half of the, if that, of the attention. Um, yeah, I read uh, Glenn Greenwald's absolute evisceration of, uh, if you guys didn't follow the story, the Organization of American States, which is based here in D.C. It's a beautiful building, by the way. I went to a uh, 
Shocker, I went to, uh, through a friend, a friend worked there, and I one time went years ago to a cocktail party. Boy, I did not fit in there. <laughs> um, they essentially said that there were election irregularities uh, in Bolivia. There was this period where these votes were coming in. There was this moment where the reporting of it had gone down, and then when it came back up, um, Evo Morales was uh, far ahead relative to where he was before the reporting had stopped. And the OAS had said there were election irregularities. But when you really examined it early on, there were some reasons to doubt that. And it turns out now that uh, several different uh, teams have identified sort of the forensics of the election. And there still may be some other factors to consider related to um, whether or not it was a fully free and fair election. But it, it is clearly true that what the OAS had said was nonsense, and they probably knew it was nonsense. And it was done merely because, uh, you know, Morales does not have uh, a similar worldview and good bilateral relations with uh, the United States. And uh, there were a bunch of people who were cheering his exile, uh, including, you can go a sort of a list here, one of them was Yasha Monk from The Atlantic, who in general I think writes some pretty good stuff, but he has not even acknowledged that he was wrong about it or the reports from Bolivia. And like you look at some of his tweets, like celebrating Morales' departure and, you know, thousands and thousands of retweets. You know, it's fucking shameful that they're not saying anything about it. Um, yeah, so again, you have to try to read a wide diversity of sources to the extent you can, ones that are a little bit higher brow than others, if you can. Um, ones that uh, have... Um, on the ground reporting, if you can, and ones that will challenge the reporting of the other, if you can. And in general, if you do that process enough, you will probably find better results than others. But no process is guaranteed to work. All right. Enjoy your weekend. I really appreciate you guys watching. Subscribe to the channel as you uh, uh, are want to do. Please give the video a thumbs up. Share it around. I'll put this podcast up tonight. We'll probably be back at 3 p.m. for the time being here East Coast time. So thank you guys so much for watching. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Have fun if you're going to watch the fights tomorrow. And if not, I don't know. Do what you want with your life. Appreciate it. Stay frosty.